we finished our discussion of the first century church, the apostolic church, and we admittedly had to go very, very quickly. There were some things that, some details that I would have loved to have discussed more fully with you, but uh, this is a survey class, and the seminary does offer a New Testament history class by Dr. Farnell. So if you're interested in digging more deeply into ancient Roman, first century Greco-Roman history, New Testament history, I would highly recommend you take that class as an elective. I do think that New Testament history is very important, not only because the book of Acts is part of your Bible, but also because understanding New Testament history becomes really, really helpful in preaching the New Testament. Because our hermeneutic here is one that is a historical, grammatical hermeneutic. The historical side of it is very important that we understand the context in which the author was writing as we interpret his authorial intent. Okay, so um, I want you to make that connection, especially with first century church history, that the church history has great exegetical import for your ministry. Today we get to begin our journey into the dark fog of ignorance. Um, maybe that's stating it too strongly, but I, I find that for most guys, this is where their understanding of church history drops precipitously as they begin to now be introduced to names and people whom perhaps they've never met before. And we start to fill in some of the gaps between the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos and Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg. I'm going to use our PowerPoint presentation. You do have a version, a PDF version of this also on Jewel, so you have these notes. I did add in a couple additional slides, but for the most part you have everything that I'll be going through today. Our discussion today centers on a group of church fathers known as the Apostolic Fathers. And this is our introduction into what we call the patristic period of church history. Patristic comes from a term that means fathers, and it's just a way of speaking of the early leaders of the Christian church. The patristic period... Uh, extends for at least the first 500 years of church history, though there would be some who would even extend it farther than that. I prefer it just the first 500 years of church history because then church history breaks down into four very neat quadrants of 500 years each, makes it easier to remember and easier to kind of build a framework in your mind. So when we talk about the patristic period, we're talking about the period of time in which the church fathers, those early Christian leaders, were following in the footsteps of the apostles and leading and guiding the church. There are no more apostles in the church. I gave you an addendum at the end of the last packet of notes for a number of reasons why I believe the apostles were unique as a foundational period in church history. And once the apostles died in church history, there is no longer a record of any apostles. The early church fathers did not refer to other Christian leaders as apostles. Rather, they referred to them as pastors and elders 
And from the term pastor, uh, we get the term bishop. That term will also be used. But we shouldn't think of the term bishop at this time in church history in the same way that modern Roman Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy thinks of the term bishop. We, th we should think of it in the biblical sense of the one who is leading the church in a pastoral role. So we have bishops, pastors, teachers, evangelists, but we don't have elders, we do have elders, we don't have apostles anymore in the church. The apostolic age has ended. We call this group of church leaders the very first generation to come after the apostles. So we're talking about late first century, early second century. This first generation of church leaders we refer to as the apostolic fathers. That can be a little confusing because it sounds like these are the guys who were the fathers of the apostles. But that's not the case. These are the disciples of the apostles. They are the first generation of church leaders to give leadership and shepherding to the Christian church after the apostles have died. So the disciples of the apostles are known as the apostolic fathers. Now, we find in 2 Timothy 2.2, that last epistle that Timothy writes, excuse me, that last epistle that Paul writes to Timothy, Paul writes it from uh, the dungeon there in Rome right before he's about to be killed in the mid to late 60s, probably around 66 or 67 AD before he will be beheaded by Nero. And Paul is very concerned about the future of the church. We saw that in Paul's missionary journeys. Every city he went to, he was very concerned with establishing and installing a leadership structure in the church, raising up godly men who would function as elders in those cities so that the church would be well established and so that the gospel witness would not burn out in those places, but rather that the church would flourish. Paul's commitment to that kind of leadership structure and building is seen in 2 Timothy 2.2, where at the end of Paul's life, knowing that he's about to die, he instructs Timothy to continue that level of leadership infrastructure in the church even after Paul is gone. And so in 2 Timothy 2.2, a passage that you know well, Paul tells Timothy, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now in that one verse, we have four generations of church leadership represented. We have Paul as an apostle, generation one. And of course, Paul, I guess generation zero is Christ himself, the cornerstone upon which the church is built. Paul and the other apostles represent generation one. Timothy, as Paul's disciple, represents generation two. The faithful men to whom Timothy entrusts the gospel are generation three, and the others also would then be generation four. So we have here in 2 Timothy 2.2, what I'll refer to as the 2 Timothy 2.2 principle, a multi-generational outlook on raising up future leaders in the church. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but one of the kind of fun things about teaching church history when we come to a verse like 2 Timothy 2.2 is we have the privilege of meeting some of these men in generations 2, 3, and 4 as we study the history of the early church. Who were 
the faithful men to whom Timothy was to entrust the gospel? And who were the others also whom those faithful men raised up to take their place? Timothy was in Ephesus as the pastor there. And we know after Paul died and after Peter died that the Apostle John came and ministered in Asia Minor, specifically in Ephesus, for many years, probably the better part of three decades. And so Timothy continued to have an apostolic mentor even after Paul had gone home to heaven. And the cool thing is that many of the earliest church leaders whom we know about are from Asia Minor, and are directly connected back to the Apostle John. And so as we go through some of these men, these are men who would have known Timothy. In many cases, these are men who probably were part of the specific group that Paul is referring to here in 2 Timothy 2.2. And these were men who were connected to the Apostle John. Again, a common misconception is that church history in terms of doctrinal orthodoxy, that church history kind of dropped off a cliff as soon as the Apostle John died, that it fell into a black hole or a vacuum of, really of Roman Catholicism, I think is what most Protestants think, until it was rescued by the Reformation. That's not an accurate view of church history. The apostles were careful to put in place leaders who would faithfully protect, guard, and proclaim the gospel in their absence. And as we go through some of these individuals, and we only know a handful of them, obviously there were many more leaders in the church than history has preserved a record of, and yet as we get to meet some of these individuals, it's really encouraging to see the way in which apostolic teaching is reflected in their own ministries. All right. As I mentioned, the apostolic fathers are so named because of their close proximity to the apostles. They are the very next generation of Christian leaders. And rather than just dismissing them as kind of being neophytes who didn't really know what they were talking about, which is sometimes how modern scholarship approaches the early church fathers, I think a much better way is to approach them as these are the men who were discipled by the apostles themselves. And they deserve our respect. They are not inspired. They are not authoritative. But they do reflect a firsthand knowledge of apostolic teaching and the application of that teaching. How cool would it be to hang out with the guys who spent time with the Apostle John? I always like to say at Starbucks every Wednesday morning for discipleship. No, but the guys who were discipled by the Apostle John... How great would it be to be able to interact with them and find out what they experienced when they spent time with someone like the Apostle John? Well, we have that privilege to a limited extent through the writings that have survived up to this point in church history. Now, admittedly, there's only a handful of these, and the reason for this is in part because in God's providence, he only saw fit for these writings to survive throughout history, but also because persecution for the first 250 years in the Roman Empire is so intense that a lot of these early writings did not survive. In fact, there are some writings that we know about because other authors mention them, but we don't have them because they were destroyed or lost at some point in church history. But the guys who we do know about and the writings that we have discovered 
include this list. Clement of Rome, who we'll talk about in a little bit. Clement of Rome should not be confused with a later church father whose name is Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Rome is one of my favorite individuals in all of church history. Clement of Alexandria is one of my least favorite, so please don't confuse the two. Uh, Clement of Alexandria did some good things, but he also did a lot of bad things. Uh, Clement of Rome just totally rocks. Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who, according to church tradition, was installed by the apostle Peter when Peter was there in Antioch before coming to Rome. Uh, Barnabas of Alexandria. This is not the Barnabas of the Bible. This is a different Barnabas writing much later from Alexandria, Egypt, and we'll talk about his writings in a moment. Papias of Hierapolis, Polycarp of Smyrna, and then we have a number of writings and documents that have survived, but we don't know who wrote them. So we have the teaching of the 12 apostles, which is called the Didache, and um, probably not written by an apostle, but an early summary of apostolic teaching. The Shepherd of Hermas and the anonymous letter to Diognetus. Okay, so these men and these writings, these are what encompass for us the apostolic fathers. And it really is the early date of these church leaders and their writings that makes them so significant. Right, we're going to spend a little time going through these individuals. We're going to spend a little bit of time reading some of the things that they wrote. Uh, it's impossible to become familiar with the things that they said unless you actually take time to read the things that they said. So we'll take a little bit of time to do that this morning. I think you're going to be encouraged as we go through these men because you're going to find that the evangelical convictions that we prize so deeply, such as the authority of Scripture and salvation by grace through faith and core doctrines like the Trinity, these convictions are found in these early, <coughs> excuse me, these convictions are found throughout the writings of these early church fathers. And that just, again, it's not authoritative, but it's very affirming to see how much similarity there is between what you and I believe 2,000 years later and what the first generation of Christians to follow the apostles taught and believed. And I think you'll be encouraged as a result. All right, let's talk about Clement of Rome. Clement, or Clement as it's sometimes uh, pronounced, was the fourth pastor, this is now according to Roman Catholic tradition, which is a little bit sketchy, I'm going to say that up front. Uh, if we start with Peter as the first pastor of the church in Rome, then the second pastor would be Linus, followed by Cletus, and then the fourth pastor would be Clement. Now, we know that Peter was not actually the first pastor in Rome, because when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he didn't mention Peter, but he mentioned a whole list of church leaders there in Romans chapter 16, which means the church was already there before Peter got there. So Peter is not the first pastor of the church in Rome. But in any case, we're going to still refer to Clement as the fourth pastor. In Roman Catholic teaching, Clement is the fourth pope. And I'll emphasize why that's so significant here in just a little bit. So after Peter, then Linus, then Cletus, this is according to tradition, 
He was probably born around A.D. 30 and died around the same time as the Apostle John. He was put to death very early into the reign of Trajan, and Trajan began his reign around 98. Clement is probably, I have here possibly, but I think it actually is him, he is probably mentioned in Philippians 4.3, where Paul notes those who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. And we know from the book that Clement wrote that he was highly, highly influenced by the Apostle Paul. The fact that Clement is in Rome where Paul ended his life is also a significant connection. And all of that, I think, gives credence to the idea that the Clement mentioned in Philippians 4.3 is the same Clement from church history. All right. Clement wrote only one letter, at least one letter that has survived, one letter that is extant. The word extant simply means that which survived. And we call that letter Clement's first epistle to the Corinthians. Now, there is a second epistle to the Corinthians, but Clement didn't write it, even though it is falsely attributed to him. And there's also some epistles regarding virginity which Clement also did not write. So we have a, a couple later letters that were wrongly attributed to Clement, but Clement himself only wrote one letter, and there's testimony in church history to that effect. He wrote that letter in the mid-90s. So at the same time that the Apostle John is being persecuted under Domitian and being exiled to the Isle of Patmos, Clement is in Rome as the pastor of the church there, probably also experiencing some level of persecution and writing a letter to the church in Corinth. So his ministry overlaps with the ministry of the Apostle John. Regarding the letter that he wrote, Eusebius, who is a 4th century church historian, says this, there is one acknowledged epistle of this Clement, whom Eusebius has just identified with the friend of the Apostle Paul, great and admirable, which he wrote in the name of the church of Rome to the church at Corinth, sedition having then arisen in the latter church. We are aware that this epistle has been publicly read in very many churches, both in old times and also in our own day. So Clement writes a letter, and it's a lengthy letter, to the church at Corinth because there is, no surprise, division that has arisen in the church at Corinth. So here we are, uh, 45 years later, almost half a century after the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church at Corinth in the mid-50s. Paul writes to Corinth because there is division in the church at Corinth. Now, from church history, we can kind of reconstruct that that division was overcome that the controversy was put down, that the false teachers were kicked out, and that Apollos came and pastored the church in Corinth for probably the next three decades or so, and that the church in Corinth flourished under his ministry. But now Apollos is gone, Paul is gone, they're home in heaven, and once again division erupts in the church at Corinth. So Clement, the friend of Paul, the pastor of the church in Rome, 
writes a letter to the Corinthians encouraging them to stop all of the infighting. That's the context for this letter being written. I want to talk a little bit about Clement's epistle to the Corinthians. Because in Clement's epistle, there is one of the most significant statements of justification by faith alone, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. So I say here, one of the most significant issues in Clement's epistle deals with the nature of justification. On the one hand, Clement reflects the teaching of the apostle James, and I added this slide in there, so it's not in your notes, but this is just to clarify what we're about to look at. On the one hand, Clement reflects the teaching of the Apostle James when he notes that the proof or the evidence of our justification is found in how a person lives and not just in what a person says. So you can profess to be a Christian, but unless that profession is evidenced or seen in a changed life, it calls the legitimacy of that profession into question. So a mere profession is meaningless if it is not backed up by the fruit of a righteous life. And we understand that from James chapter 2. But Clement also and simultaneously reflects the teaching of the Apostle Paul in places like Ephesians 2, noting that the basis for our justification is found solely in God's grace through faith in Christ. So justification is on the basis of God's grace, through faith in Christ, and yet it will result in a changed life, which will produce subsequent good works. Okay, we understand that. That's lordship salvation. One of the things you're going to be really encouraged by as we go through these early Christian leaders is that they were strong advocates of lordship salvation. They clearly teach justification by faith alone, and they clearly teach that the implications of justification or the evidence of justification are seen in a changed life. In this way, Clement distinguishes between the root of justification, which is grace by faith, and the fruit of justification, which is good works. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the Apostle James and the Apostle Paul. And just to clarify from the very beginning, there is absolutely no contradiction between what James was saying in James chapter 2 and what Paul is saying in places like Ephesians chapter 2 and Titus chapter 3. They are talking about different aspects of salvation. Justification is by faith alone apart from works, and yet saving faith is never alone in the sense that it will always result in a life that has been changed. All right, so let's read a little bit from Clement's letter. This is from chapter 30, and we're going to start with a portion here that is going to reflect the teaching of the Apostle James. He says, let us therefore cling to those to whom grace is given from God. Let us clothe ourselves in concord. In other words, hey, let's stop fighting and let's start acting in unity. Being lowly minded and temperate, holding ourselves aloof from all backbiting and evil speaking, being justified, being vindicated by works and not by words. In other words, it's not your mere profession which demonstrates your Christian life. It is a change in your behavior. You'll see down there in paragraph 6, let our praise be with God and not of ourselves. 
for God hates those who commend themselves. Let the testimony to our good deeds be given by others, as it was in the case of our righteous forefathers. You can see in the context here that he's saying, you guys are professing to be Christians, and yet in the way that you're living in this infighting and disunity, you're actually calling that profession into question. So, reflecting James, let your justification be proven by your works and not merely by your words. Let the testimony to your let the testimony to your salvation be given by God and by others when they see your good works and are convinced by your changed life that you truly are who you claim to be. He goes on then, chapter 31, let us therefore cling to his blessing and let us see what are the ways of blessing. Let us study the records of the things that have happened from the beginning. Why was our father Abraham blessed? Was it not because he wrought or brought about righteousness and truth through faith? So now he's starting to make the connection. Your good works are coming as a result of your faith. He's using Abraham as an example. Well, who else in the Bible does that? Both James and Paul. Paul in Romans, James, of course, in the epistle of James. They both look to Abraham as an example of one who was justified by faith, and then that justification was proven through his works, demonstrated, evidenced. Looks at Isaac, looks at Jacob. Chapter 32, if any man will consider, so we're still in the same flow, same context, chapter 30, 31, 32, if any man will consider them one by one in sincerity, he will understand the magnificence of the gifts that are given by God. For of Jacob are all the priests, the Levites, and goes on through that. Number three there, paragraph three, they all therefore were glorified and magnified, the patriarchs, not through themselves or their own works or the righteous doing which they wrought, but through God's will. And then here, in the same context, here is the clear statement. This is chapter 32, paragraph 4 of Clement's first epistle. And so we, you can tell that this is important because even Clement underlined it and put it in a bigger font. No, he didn't, I didn't. And so we, having been called through his will in Christ Jesus, are not justified through ourselves or through our own wisdom or understanding or piety or works which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but through faith, whereby the Almighty God justified all men that have been from the beginning, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is... In one paragraph, perhaps one of the clearest statements of justification by faith alone in all of church history. Now, not to worry, this is not the only statement of justification by faith alone in church history. <clears throat> We're going to spend a later lecture going through about 60 similar statements from about 25 church fathers who all say the same thing. But this is a clear statement nonetheless. And what makes it so significant is here we have the fourth pope according to Roman Catholic tradition, clearly stating that you are justified not on the basis of your own wisdom or your own holiness or your own piety or your own goodness or understanding or any of the works which you could have wrought either before or after you are a Christian. You are only justified through faith, which is the same way that God justified Abraham and everyone else that's been saved in all of, all of human history. So you can see chapter 30, paragraph 3, 
don't let your profession alone be the only indication of your justification. Make sure that your profession is actually backed up by the changed life. If you claim to be a Christian, live like a Christian. But the root of your Christian faith, the root of your salvation here in chapter 32, paragraph 4, is only by faith in the same way that Abraham was justified solely on the basis of faith. Now, I wanted to give you that broader context because I've actually debated some Roman Catholics about Clement of Rome and his teaching on justification by faith. And they go back to chapter 30 and they say, see, he didn't teach justification by faith alone. He taught justification by works. No, he was reflecting the teaching of James and then he was reflecting the teaching of Paul. Now, Paul also emphasizes that the fruit of justification is works. And James also emphasizes that the root of justification, the root of every good gift that comes from above in chapter 1, is a gift of God's grace. So James and Paul don't disagree ever. And uh, when we get a little bit later, especially when we get to Augustine, Augustine has this very clear statement of how Paul is focusing on the root of justification and James is focusing on the fruit of justification, and that's exactly how evangelicals have always understood salvation throughout all of church history. So what a cool, and I almost feel like reading it again, but I'm going to read it many more times before this class is over, but what a great statement right here in the earliest surviving document that we have outside of the New Testament, the fourth pastor of the Church of Rome, a disciple of Paul and Peter, an acquaintance of the Apostle John, writing in the 90s AD, reflecting the teaching of Paul that evangelicals have always clung to, that Salvation is on the basis of God's grace alone, and it is apart from any human wisdom, understanding, piety, works, or holiness. It is only on the basis, it is only received through faith, of course, on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. Now, Clement's going to go on, because we're going to read the next little section here. Clement's going to go on, and he's essentially going to do the same thing that the Apostle Paul does in the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul spends a lot of time in the book of Romans establishing the fact that justification is by faith alone in chapter 4 and chapter 5, and he uses the example of Abraham just like Clement does here. Clement is probably following Paul's pattern. He was certainly aware of the book of Romans since he's a pastor in Rome 40 years later. And in Romans 6, 1, after Paul has established justification is by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, Paul does this. He says, well, does that mean that we should sin so that grace may abound? And he says, of course not. May it never be. It's a very strong expression in Greek because we would never want to presume upon God's grace. Grace is not given so that men may sin. Grace is given so that men may live in righteousness. And so here, the very next paragraph in chapter 33, what then must we do, brethren? Should we idly abstain from doing good? In other words, I just reiterated the fact, this is Clement, I just reiterated the fact that justification is on the basis of God's grace through faith. Does that mean we can live however we want? He says, may the master never allow this to befall us. Sounds very much like Romans 6.1. May it never be. But let us hasten with urgency and zeal to accomplish every good work. So again, the basis is faith, but the result is 
good works. The essence is grace through faith. The evidence is seen in a changed life. And so then he goes on, uh, paragraph 8 here, seeing, or paragraph 7, we have seen that all, right, all the righteous were adorned in good works. Yes, and the Lord himself, having adorned himself with worlds rejoiced, he's using creation now as an example, seeing then that we have this pattern, let us conform ourselves with all diligence to his will, and let us with all our strength work the work of righteousness. This is lordship salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith, but those who are truly saved will demonstrate a change in the way that they live. And that change will result in good works. So the result is good works, but the root is grace through faith. Yeah, David. I, you know, I have interacted with some of the free grace advocates on both the New Testament teaching of lordship salvation, which is undeniably clear. Like, you have to be intentionally distorting the scripture uh, to get around it, and with church history. Um, and uh, the response is essentially, well, the church fathers aren't authoritative, so we're not going to pay any attention to them. Sure. Interactions. Okay. Sure. There's, there's no argument with the, um, there's no argument with the gospel message in terms of its content that's being taught by these early fathers. I think the response would be, the early church fathers quickly fell into works-based salvation, and that's where the Roman Catholic Church comes from. So that that's the free grace response because as soon as you say that the gospel makes demands on how a person lives, they immediately call foul. Oh, that's a good question, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to canonicity. A lot of the early churches, because these writings were so early, a lot of the early churches did read these early writings for the purpose of edification, but no one considered it to be canonical in the same sense as the apostolic writings. Clement was never considered to be an apostle, therefore his letter was never really considered as even being a possible, uh, possibly included in the canon. Now, when we talk about canonicity, it's important to stress the fact that the early church did not determine the canon, they recognized the canon. And one of the key factors in their recognition was, does this come with apostolic authority? Clement's epistle does not come with apostolic authority, therefore it is not canonical. Oh, sure. There's, there's references to Paul all over the place in Clement's first epistle, and there's references to the New Testament all over the place in the writings of the early church fathers. In fact, um, there are some scholars who have stated that there's so many allusions and references to the New Testament in the writings of the church fathers, I think over 32,000 if I remember, that you could reconstruct basically the entire New Testament just from the writings of the church fathers themselves. Now, that's not just the apostolic fathers. That's including the entire span of patristic history. But still, they were very dependent on the scriptures. And that's a point that we're going to make throughout this class, is that for the church fathers, tradition and church councils 
really didn't hold nearly the same amount of weight as the scriptures themselves. They were in practice and also overtly, they were committed to the principle of sola scriptura because apostolic authority in John 14, 15, and 16, in the upper room, the Lord Jesus commissions his apostles and he tells them that he gives them his authority through the Holy Spirit to teach the church things that the Lord will reveal to them through the Holy Spirit after he's ascended. So they are authorized as his representatives to bring inspired authoritative truth to the church. That inspired authoritative truth is found in the New Testament. And I'm curious about this uh, epistle because Paul wrote uh, two or three letters to Corinthians and uh, Clement is writing a letter. Why is it like it's uh, specifically for the Corinthians? Well, in this particular case, it why is this letter specifically for the Corinthians? Because there was a problem that had arisen within the Corinthian church and had gotten big enough that other churches had started to hear about it. And so Clement took the opportunity to encourage his brothers in Corinth to stop the disunity and to start living according to their profession, which is what he was saying there in the, the 30th chapter of his letter. No, I wouldn't see it as a follow-up to the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. I don't think Clement saw himself in the same position as Paul. Certainly, Clement did not view himself as an apostle. This is one pastor writing to another congregation because of the things that he's hearing which have deeply concerned him, and he is going to encourage and instruct them to follow apostolic teaching and he's going to actually reiterate much of that apostolic teaching in his letter. But we've got 40 years or so that have passed between the writing of 1st and 2nd Corinthians and the writing of this epistle. That's a long enough time that I don't think we should see this as like a sequel to, uh, to the biblical letters. Yes, sir? It would just seem that the uh, church at Corinth was a very significant church given the amount of time that Paul and Apollos spent there. So I would imagine that Clement of Rome would have had a special affection for them, knowing that um, they, they had been under that leadership, but not necessarily, as you said, just following up on his letters. Yeah, absolutely. And again, he Corinth was a very important city there at uh, the Isthmus. Um, but, but also, if the Clement in Philippians 4.3 is this Clement, which I believe it is, then he had personal interaction with Paul on his missionary journeys, probably interacted with the church at Corinth, maybe even while Paul was there. So it's not too much of a stretch to think that Clement was personally invested in the Corinthian church, just as Paul had been personally invested in this church. Good, good questions. Yes, sir. I have a question about sources. I saw earlier you mentioned Eusebius and Origen. Who would other sources be, or would those to be the main sources for the apostolic fathers? Well, if you're talking about the apostolic fathers in general, um, with the, when I mentioned Origen and Eusebius as sources, I was specifically referring to some of the biographical details about Clement of Rome himself. So as scholars pour through all of the literature that has survived, 
when details arise. Uh, that's where this evidence comes from. So Clement of Rome specifically is mentioned by both Origen and by Eusebius of Caesarea. So they provide later testimony to verify some of our conclusions about Clement today. Uh, like Roger Olson, he really did kind of take the view, it seemed like, that pretty much they were just works-based. Yeah, Roger Olson does kind of imply that the church had become very moralistic and works-based within just a few decades after the apostles died. I don't, I don't think that's a correct way of expressing the true balance that existed. There are times uh, where, um, where that external behavior was emphasized by some of the church fathers. But having said that, when we find them writing about the essence of the gospel, they are consistent in their expression of a gospel of grace through faith. So maybe sometimes they did overemphasize the morals that ought to result from a changed life. But in terms of their understanding of the gospel, uh, I, I do believe that the patristic period represents an orthodox evangelical understanding of the gospel. And I, th I think we can defend that, and we will defend that in later class periods. But we see an inkling of it here with Clement of Alexandria. So just to go back, 32.4 is one of the clearest and earliest statements of justification by faith alone, or justification by grace alone through faith alone on the basis of Christ's work alone uh, that we have in church history. And that's what makes it so significant. Um, then one final note here. This is again from chapter 34. And these are not random chapters uh, these are chapters in context. So we've been following this in flow from chapter 30 up through chapter 34. There in paragraph 4, and this kind of summarizes the whole thing. He exhorts us, and this is, he's referring to God here. God exhorts us, therefore, to believe on him with our whole heart and to be not idle nor careless unto every good work. And that really is a one-sentence summary of lordship salvation. That salvation, in its essence, is granted through no works of ours, but only to those who believe on him with their whole heart. And yet the evidence of that salvation is seen in those who are not idle or careless unto every good work. Okay, uh, we've kind of gone over this already, so how can Clement say that we are justified by our works, not our words, and then say that we are justified by faith? And the answer really is that Clement is discussing the fruit or evidence of justification in the first instance, and then in the second instance, he is discussing the root or essence of salvation, and we see both of those principles emphasized throughout the New Testament. And then we already talked about how, just like Paul in Romans 6.1,
Clement follows up his strong statement of justification by faith alone by saying, does that mean we can live however we want? May the master never allow it. May it never be, but rather grace is given so that we might pursue righteousness. Okay, this is the same balance that was taught by the reformers, and uh, I just want to bring us back to emphasizing these evangelical principles. Martin Luther says, when we have thus taught faith in Christ, that's the essence of justification, then do we also teach good works. That's the evidence. Because you have laid hold upon Christ by faith through whom you are made righteous, begin now to work well. Love God and your neighbor. Call upon God. Give thanks unto him. Praise him. Confess him. Do good to your neighbor and serve him. Fulfill your office. These are good works indeed which flow out of this faith. So you shouldn't think of the Reformation call to sola fide as a libertarian uh, or libertine license to live however you want. Not libertarian, that's the political party. John Calvin, we dream not of a faith which is devoid of good works. Would you then obtain justification in Christ? You must previously possess Christ, but you cannot possess him without being made a partaker of his sanctification. So to be justified is to be progressively sanctified. Elsewhere, we deny that good works have any share in justification, but we claim full authority for them in the life of the righteous. It is obvious that grace-wrought righteousness is necessarily connected with regeneration. So, salvation is apart from works, but those who are saved are characterized by good works. And that's the same balance that Dr. MacArthur contended for in the Gospel according to Jesus. And I put a quote here, I inserted this in. This is from his James commentary. The genuineness of a profession of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is evidenced more by what a person does than by what he claims. Well, that's exactly what Clement was saying in 30 paragraph 3. It cannot be stressed too often that no one can be saved by works, but neither can it be stressed too often that as James declares in the present passage, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Genuine, transforming faith not only should but will produce genuine works, notably repentance and obedient submission to Christ's Lordship. Okay, so I know we've kind of been spending a long time on this point, but I think it's an important point. One of the most important discussions that we will have in this class is where was the gospel in church history? And so I'm going to take every opportunity I have to talk about how was the gospel being perceived and taught and defended at various points throughout church history? And what I think you'll find encouraging is that Roman Catholicism, as we think of it today, really did not come on the scene until the high Middle Ages. And um, that the gospel of grace was preserved throughout church history and intact throughout church history for most of church history, all the way up until the pre-reformers in the 1100s and 1200s, and then finally the Reformation in the 1600s. All right, according to tradition, Clement was martyred by Trajan in the early years of his reign, and he was killed by being thrown over a boat and drowned. Uh, there are a couple problems with this depiction. Uh, first, the forced perspective in this painting is amazing. Um, Clement is 
considerably larger than any of the other people on the boat. But beyond that, uh, Clement did not wear that kind of garb, okay? So this is a Roman Catholic way of depicting Clement as a pope in a medieval papal way, but obviously uh, the papal dress and other things was introduced much later and actually gradually developed throughout the Middle Ages until it became what it is today. All right, let's move on to talk about Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp uh, lived from around A.D. 69 to around A.D. 155. Polycarp is really an interesting figure because he was a disciple of John. So Clement is a disciple of Peter and uh, our disciple of Paul and a, probably an acquaintance of Peter because of his connection in Rome. Now we move to Polycarp, who is a disciple of the Apostle John. He's also a friend of an individual we'll meet a little bit later, Ignatius of Antioch. He's a companion of Papias of Hierapolis, and he is the teacher of Irenaeus of Lyon. So if we're looking for that four-generation pattern, we see it with the Apostle John, and then we have maybe Timothy and others, and then Polycarp, and then Irenaeus as it fleshes itself out in church history. He has one surviving letter. This is his letter to the Philippians. But there's also a very early account of his death in what is called the martyrdom of Polycarp. And it is considered to be one of the earliest genuine accounts of Christian martyrdom. Probably was written down just a few generations after Polycarp died. Polycarp was martyred. There was probably an oral tradition that arose out of that. He was killed in Smyrna. Many of his church members may have been there watching this um, martyrdom take place. And then these were written down early in church history. So much like Fox's Book of Martyrs, which of course is not written until the 17th century, you had early Christians who kept a record of martyrdoms for the sake of not only remembering those who had been faithful, but also encouraging those who would yet be tested. This is one of the earliest accounts. Here's a map showing where Smyrna is. Smyrna is one of the seven churches addressed in Revelation. And that is certainly fitting, given the fact that the pastor of the church in Smyrna, Polycarp, was a disciple of the Apostle John, the one who recorded the revelation of Jesus Christ there in the book of Revelation. And uh, along with Ignatius, along with Papias, these individuals were connected to the Apostle John as he ministered there in Asia Minor. So you have Rome way over there on the left where Clement was, and then Smyrna in modern-day Turkey. Okay, let's read a little bit about Polycarp's death. This comes from that ancient account, the martyrdom of Polycarp. And again, probably written in the late 2nd or maybe early 3rd century. This is very, very old, and as a result is considered to be highly accurate, though perhaps there are some legendary aspects included in it, but for the most part, an accurate portrayal of what happened at the end of Polycarp's life. Now, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, this is there in Smyrna, 
there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show yourself a man, O Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice, and as he was brought forward, the tumult of the crowd became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken or arrested. When he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect for your old age and other similar things according to their custom, such as swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, away with the atheists. Now, let's pause there for a second. Why would a Roman proconsul encourage a Christian man to say, away with the atheists? doesn't make a lot of sense in our 21st century way of thinking about atheism. But in uh, first century Rome, Christians were accused of being atheists because they denied the entire Roman pantheon of gods, all of whom had visible statues and everything else, and instead worshipped an invisible god. And so the Romans accused them of being atheists. You're the ones who deny belief in the gods and worship some sort of invisible god. You're an atheist. And so essentially what the Roman proconsul is doing is saying, look, stay away with the Christians, away with the atheists. But Polycarp's going to turn it on him. It says here, Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium, waved his hand towards them and with groans looked up to heaven and said, okay, away with the atheists. And he points at all the, all the uh, Roman pagans. So he said, sure, yeah, yeah away with the atheists. Those who uh, worship idols are not worshiping the true God. They are the real atheists, and so he points to them. Then the proconsul, urging him and saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty, reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, and this is one of the most famous statements out of early church history, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So Polycarp did not give in. The proconsul said to him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beasts, if you will not repent. Polycarp said, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why do you tarry? Do what you will. So Polycarp is... He's good at turning a phrase. Away with the atheists? Sure, away with the atheists. He points at all the pagans. You want to burn me with fire? I'll tell you about fire. And he tells him about the coming judgment. While he spoke these and many other similar things, he was filled with confidence and joy, and his countenance was full of grace. On the contrary, the proconsul was astonished and sent his herald to proclaim in the midst of the stadium three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. This time it's a crime punishable by death. This proclamation, having been made by the herald, the whole multitude, both of the heathen and the Jews who dwelt at Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, this is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians and the overthrower of our gods. He who has been teaching many not to sacrifice, that would be the Jewish response, or to worship the gods, which would be the Roman pagan response. What a great testimony that the unbelievers were upset at this man because he was not unlike Alexander the coppersmith or Demetrius the silversmith. Here, 
Uh, you have paganism being overthrown. It's bad for the economy. It's bad for false religion. They want this guy dead. Then it seemed good to them to cry out with one voice or one consent that Polycarp should be burned alive. After he had been tied to the stake, Polycarp prayed, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers and of every creature and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs and the cup of your Christ to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the incorruption imparted by the Holy Ghost, among whom may I be accepted this day before you as a choice and acceptable sacrifice, according as you, the ever-truthful God, have foreordained and have revealed beforehand to me and now have fulfilled. Wherefore also I praise you for all things. I bless you, I glorify you, along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, with whom to you and the Holy Ghost be glory both now and to all coming ages. Amen. That's a great prayer, but there's a couple things I want to point out to you in this prayer. Number one, Polycarp does not pray to a saint. There's no mention of any saints. There's no mention of Mary anywhere in this prayer. Uh, that's important because people at this time period did not pray to saints or to Mary. Also, there is a clear Trinitarian emphasis in this prayer. And uh, you'll, you'll see this when you read through uh, Stephen Nichols for us and for our salvation. But there are some cult groups today, in particular the Jehovah's Witnesses, who try and make the claim that the Trinity was not really a Christian doctrine until after the Council of Nicaea. Well, that's certainly not the case. The Council of Nicaea, Christians were forced to articulate some of the specifics because they were defending the truth against the false teaching of Arius. But all true Christians, ever since the time of Christ and the apostles, affirmed and believed in the deity and equality of the Son of God and the Spirit of God, and they worshipped, uh, in fact, um, Pliny the Younger, who is a a uh, Roman secular governor writes in a second century letter about how the Christians worshipped the crucified Messiah as a god. Now, there are just clear instances before the Council of Nicaea that Christians were Trinitarian, even if they didn't have the language of Nicaea to be able to express that. Here we see an example of it, especially right there at the end. He's praying to the Father, and yet he is also including glory for Christ and the Holy Spirit on equal footing in terms of their ontological essence. So I just want to point out to you some of these factors in early church history because I don't want you to get confused by Roman Catholics on the one hand who come along and say the early church was Catholic or cult groups on the other hand who come along and say, oh yeah, that, the Trinity was invented at the Council of Nicaea. Neither of those things are true. Neither of those things are supported by the historical evidence. All right, one final paragraph here. This then is the account of the blessed Polycarp, who being the twelfth that was martyred in Smyrna, yet occupies a place of his own in the memory of all men, insomuch that he is everywhere spoken of by the heathen themselves. He was not only 
an illustrious teacher, but also a preeminent martyr whose martyrdom all desire to imitate as having been altogether consistent with the gospel of Christ, meaning being faithful to the end, even in death. For having through patience overcome the unjust governor and thus acquired the crown of immortality, he now with the apostles and all the righteous in heaven rejoicingly glorifies God, even the Father, and blesses our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, the governor of our bodies, and the shepherd of the universal church throughout the world. You'll notice there's no indication of the Seventh-day Adventist Jehovah's Witness doctrine of soul sleep. Polycarp is dead, but Polycarp is not in some sort of state of waiting, in uh, some sort of soul sleep. He is very much alive in heaven with the apostles, glorifying Christ around the throne. And then, of course, the exaltation both of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, a, this is a fitting end, this early account of Polycarp's martyrdom. And as we read through this, our own hearts rejoice greatly with some of these great truths that are encompassed in this account. Uh, here is a much later drawing. This is actually from the Martyr's Mirror, uh, which recounted a number of Anabaptist martyrs. It's kind of like Fox's Book of Martyrs, but for the Anabaptists. And uh, a picture there in it of Polycarp's martyrdom. Uh, you'll notice that Polycarp in the picture is being stabbed with a sword. And that's because, and this perhaps is legendary, but according to tradition, the flames did not consume Polycarp. And so he had to be stabbed with a sword because... Um, he had been miraculously preserved in the fire. Uh, that's probably a sprinkling of legend into the midst of the story. And yet he, uh, like those great heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and like many of the early martyrs, who we'll talk about more in a later class period, evidenced the genuineness of his faith even in the face of death. Yep. You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I am not sure how quickly um, execution by being burned at the stake. I'm not. I'm not sure how quickly that uh, would would kill someone. Um, so I don't know. Yes, sir. The, the soul. You said the sleeping of the soul, or soul. Can that also be related to purgatory? You know, I think it could be also related to purgatory. You don't have really the introduction of the idea of purgatory until we get uh, upwards of the 4th century, 5th century. Augustine, unfortunately, opens the door for the possibility of purgatory, and then a guy named Gregory comes along and really blows the door wide open. So, yeah, there, there is no concept of purgatory in these early church leaders either. Um, but soul sleep is distinct from purgatory in the sense that soul sleep is the idea that when people die, they go into a permanent state of, not permanent, into a elongated state of unconsciousness, and they remain in that state until they are raised from the dead. 
So you die, you're unconscious, and then the next conscious, conscious waking thought takes place at the resurrection. Whereas biblically, we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. And certainly the believers who knew Polycarp and had witnessed his execution believed that same thing, that for him to have been absent from the body and yet not, not yet raised, he was in heaven with Christ. Yeah, David. You said earlier that Polycarp was discipled by John. Yes. And I was just curious, did he have any writings where he expresses millennial views? Um, um, you know, we'll get into a little bit of the discussion of the, of the eschatological issue. Um, Polycarp, we only have one surviving letter, his letter to the Philippians, so we don't have a lot that we're working with with Polycarp. Most scholars um, would identify Polycarp as being, I think, in the premillennial camp, but it's not as explicit as we get with Papias, who was the friend of Polycarp, or with Irenaeus, who was the disciple of Polycarp. So Polycarp is the disciple of John. Irenaeus is the disciple of Polycarp. Irenaeus is an explicit premillennialist. So I think the implication is that Polycarp probably was too. But we'll talk about that more when we get to Papias of Herapolis. And when you were saying, you were just pointing out by some of these uh, recordings of this martyrdom, certain things, and you made the comment that he expressed the doctrine of the Trinity, but not necessarily in the formal creedal way. Um, has there ever been a lot of core doctrines of the Christian faith? Are most of them always in response, like when we actually sit down and write this stuff out? Or is have there ever been key doctrines that were formally written out before it becomes controversial? I don't know if my question makes sense, but can you think yeah, of asking Yeah, you're, you're asking about the formulation and articulation of biblical doctrines. Is it always in response to controversy? And the answer is that it often is in response to controversy. I, I would have to think about it a little bit more to think if I could think of an example that wasn't. But, I mean, certainly the, the resurrection is not formulated in response to controversy. Christ is raised from the dead and we preach the resurrection and we preach the gospel and the apostles preach that gospel and then controversy arose in response to the preaching of that truth. But as we get into church history, we do have false teaching that arises and the church is forced to reiterate and sometimes even more clearly articulate exactly what it is that the apostles taught and what church leaders had always believed throughout church history, but maybe hadn't been forced to formulate in quite that way because a challenge had not been issued like it was in that particular context. So, for example, when we get to the Arian controversy and the Council of Nicaea, in the first few centuries of church history, it was actually the humanity of Christ that was questioned, not the deity of Christ. And that's because the Gnostics taught that Jesus did not come in a fleshly human body because they held to a docetic view of Christ, docetism meaning illusion or appearance, that Christ only had the appearance of a body. And that was based on their dualistic belief that 
the material universe is evil and the spiritual is good. So if Christ is good, he couldn't have had a physical body because physical bodies are evil. In fact, Gnosticism is all built on the idea of getting away from your body and escaping it and ascending to some sort of spiritual higher plane of existence. So, for example, in 1 John chapter 4, when the Apostle John emphasizes that the Spirit of God will point to the truth about Christ, he emphasizes that the Spirit of God will only be revealed in a true prophet who, who um, emphasizes Christ's literal humanity, his physical humanity. So there's an example of, in the early church, of them defending the genuine humanity of Christ. The deity of Christ was assumed until we get to the 4th century, end of the 3rd century, early 4th century, when Arius, who is a deacon in the church in Alexandria, suddenly has this idea that, well, maybe Jesus is divine, but he's not fully equal to God the Father. And in Arius's mind, he couldn't, he couldn't make the math work on the Trinity. So, you know, three persons, one God. That w- Arius couldn't make that math work, which none of us can, and we just embrace the mystery of it. For Arius, it became an insurmountable problem, and he said, well, if we can't have three persons in one Godhead, then we need to demote the Son and the Spirit to some lesser, some lesser uh, essence. And uh, so Arius came up with the idea that the Son of God was a created being and that he was born in the same way that a son would be born today, that he was literally begotten in the sense of being created. This is Arius' view. Well, that had never, no one had ever issued that challenge before, and suddenly the Orthodox Christian church, in the sense of true believers, rose up and said, no way, that's, that's not what we have been taught. That is not what we have believed since the time of the apostles. And they articulated that in the Nicene Creed. That was a really long answer, but we'll get to the Nicene Creed a little bit later. Um, I guess my point is, oftentimes in church history, the articulation of doctrine is in response to error. But that articulation is not the basis for why they believe that. They believe that because that's what they've always believed, and that's what they know the scriptures to teach. They've just never been forced to articulate it quite this way before because no one has ever issued this specific challenge. Okay. Um, all right, let's, we will stop there. We will pick up on Thursday with Ignatius of Antioch. And we'll finish our discussion of the Apostolic Fathers then on Thursday. But anyway, I I hope you guys are, I hope you'll be encouraged through this process because I think what you're going to find is that the evangelical convictions that you hold are reflected and represented in these men and the things that you've been taught about church history, that church history is Catholic and everything else, that those notions are going, those myths really are going to be dispelled as we go through this.